Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So delighted to be joined online by Tim Visser. Tim, how are you? Very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. How um, How is lockdown treating you? What's, what's your current setup at the moment? Um... It's been okay. I think, um, you know, I think first and foremost, no one um, around me or in my immediate environment has has been significantly affected by by COVID uh, in terms of health, in terms of you know, financially. Um, so that's all been uh, okay. I think um, the biggest challenge for us has been uh, you know, boredom, uh, and still so. I think it now gets to the point where. And Nicola Sturgeon, in my opinion, needs to get on with it. I, for a long time, be um, really quite conservative. You know, I, I literally didn't see anyone for for three months. Uh, right. Lockdown. The uh, you know the only only thing I did was uh, go to the shops, and and that was it once a week. So, um, I was I was really quite in that mindset as to you know we need to suppress this virus. Everyone needs to do their bit, but then. You know, looking at what's happening in Holland, um, they're, they're miles ahead there. You know, pubs have reopened, uh, terraces are open, all that kind of stuff. Cinemas are now opening on Monday, I believe. Um, and then seeing what, what happens south of the border as well. Um, and then comparing that to, you know, the amount of, of deaths that we're seeing in Scotland. I think it was something like two over the weekend. You mm-hmm. think, listen, there is now not any point in King keeping us locked down any longer. But, um, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, you know, planning and prepping for coming out of lockdown. I run a property development company, so so that's taken up some of my time. Um, two young kids, which obviously keeps me very busy, two young boys, Dennis two and Josh is four. Um, so, you know, looking after them and, uh, and policing them a little bit <laughs> has kept me very busy. Um, but, you know, it's in the end of the day, it's for us, and I'm sure other people are... are differently affected it's not being the end of the world really yeah for sure um no it sounds really interesting and for for the people who don't know what can you maybe just tell us a bit more about that the property business that you you have been running and sort of um how you got into that yeah i think i kind of always had a big interest in property so i bought my first flat when i was 18 down in newcastle um and i've still got that um and from then on, kind of just, you know, always been attracted to property. And I think in Edinburgh, that's quite easy because architecturally everything's beautiful. So it's, it's an easy product to work with in that regard. Mm. Um, but whilst I was playing, um, you know, I studied 
I studied, uh, I did my business management degree, um, and I did, you know, various other bits of work experience. But on the side, I've always invested in property. So, um, together with um, Ben Cairns, uh, who's known, you'll, you'll obviously all know, um, we've we've gathered somewhat of a, a portfolio around the Edinburgh City Centre, which which we run together, um, which you know over the years has not only provided us with uh, a decent income, but it's also given us a lot of experience in, in property development inadvertently because you know, a lot of these properties will need work here and there or you know you buy something that needs a new kitchen or a bathroom or whatever it is. Uh, over the years, you gather these vast amounts of, of experience of how to do things that eventually mean that you can take on um, you know run-down properties uh, and you know, make them beautiful again, which is essentially what we've been doing over the last couple of months. Um, we started here in September. Um, and we're now on property five, um, and, and that's with having not done anything for the last three months. So we were we were on a bit of a roll, um, but I don't do that with Ben. I work together with an investor from London, mm. a good friend of mine, who um, who I own the company with, and, mm-hmm. and, and that's completely separate from the investment side of things, which which is what I do with Ben Gans. Um but it's uh, yeah, it's it's incredibly good fun. You know, you go into these properties, and, and Adam is obviously a big place. But um, you know, people that have passed away in a state sale, or you know, elderly people, or just generally really run down properties where you know needs new bathrooms, new kitchens, uh, seven layers of wallpapers. You know, we genuinely find olive green three piece bathroom suites, uh, <laughs> which you would you wouldn't think they still exist. But, yeah. Sure. Um, and, you know, we, we do bits of, of structural work as well. Uh, you know, we, we jig rooms around if that makes it better to, for, for, for people to live in nowadays. You know, I think uh, living requirements have somewhat changed from people wanting small pokey rooms that were easy to warm back in the day to, uh, you know, more sort of bigger open plan living. Um, so we, we do stuff like that. Uh, and more recently for anyone that's seen my stuff on LinkedIn, we took on a unit just actually near to Murrayfield which um, completely burned out about 10 years ago, uh, which meant that there was no internal walls, absolutely nothing. And then, um, you know, we, we've come in there and we've just started afresh, built walls, um, you know, first fix. Uh, we're now at the stage where uh, the plaster is in, which means that it now actually looks like a flat rather than a big concrete box. Right. Um, but it's really quite nice um, seeing these horrific places that no one wants to live in coming back to life and becoming beautiful places. Yeah, for sure. I mean, was was coming back to Edinburgh always part of the plan for you and your in your family? I think so. Um, it was part of the perfect plan. Um, I think we really wanted to come back to Edinburgh. We didn't realise how lovely it is until you move down to London. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, London's a lovely place, but standard and quality of living is down the drain. You know, it's not good. Mm. Um, and don't get me wrong, I loved my time at Harlequins. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, the club, I, I can't speak highly enough of. Um, but, you know, having to fork out two and a half, three grand for, for living in a place where you think, well, if this was in Edinburgh, I'd be in a huge, huge flat on Great King Street. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that over time, that starts creating on you. But, you know, Edinburgh, it's quite a special place because, and I'm obviously biased, but it's it's, it's a capital, it's vibrant, uh, there's universities, uh, there's tourism, but it's a very compact city. You know, you can get from one end to the other in 20 minutes if you know your way around. Uh, and if you do that in London, you know, talking two hours at least, so, mm. um, very accessible. Um, and, you know, the most important thing for us, I think, is the fact that we had a lot of friends uh, in the city. And I think, you know, talking about friends, uh, it, it's really nice to see a lot of the old Edinburgh guard now coming back to the city. Uh, I've been hanging out with Dave Denton a lot, who's obviously retired with a with concussion. Mm. Um Big Grigley Lord is, is back for now. Uh, and, uh, you know, Matt Scott was obviously here and now moving away again. But, um, you know, all the boys that I played uh, in Edinburgh with uh, are are now sort of coming back to the city or are still here, which is lovely. Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, have, have you, since the lockdown has been happening, have you sort of been like, do, do you watch a lot of rugby? Have you been missing it? Um, not not being on the, on the TV, for instance? Um, not really, to be completely honest. I think 
Um, and when I finished rugby, and, and I've said this before, I was absolutely done with it. I, I, um, I'd had enough, I'd had my share, I really enjoyed it. Um, and it was just, it felt like a real natural way for me to step out. Um, you know, I had a year left on the contract with Queen's, but I just didn't want to play rugby anymore. So sure. you know, we came to a mutual understanding. And at that point, I was I was very sick of rugby. You know, I'd had a 15-year overload of the sport and um, I didn't watch it on, on, I didn't watch it on TV. And, and um, I, in all honesty, I never really watched it um, when I was playing. You know, I, I did some analysis on my opponents, you know, the very minimal amount because... When you play rugby and train rugby all day long, you don't want to be watching rugby as well. It just, it just becomes yeah. too much. Um, but I'm actually now, and very quickly after I finished rugby, and I came back to Edinburgh in September, very quickly started enjoying watching it again. Um, you know, so having been invited back to the club a couple of times by uh, you know the new Edinburgh CEO, uh, Doug has been uh, has been amazing because I now sit in the stands as a genuine fan. You know, I watch the rugby. And I watched my old club do really well in the Richard Cockrell and, and I've really started enjoying it. And yeah, I know I watch rugby on TV, ideally highlights, because I think my attention span doesn't last, doesn't last that long. Um, no, I can't say I've missed it, but it's also been really quite good to see the highlights come out of New Zealand at the moment. Yeah, for sure. I think most rugby fans are just sort of desperate for for anything, you know, regardless of, where the, of the country. Um yeah, yeah. Maybe if we just sort of like go go right right back to the to the start of your rugby career. Um, where where did you sort of first develop that love of the game? What what are your sort of earliest memories of you know having a ball in hand that sort of thing? Um, for me, I think probably my dad. My dad, you know, played his whole life. Uh, and actually, say his whole life. I don't think he picked the rugby ball up until he was about seventeen. But you know, very quickly really well, um, played uh, something like 67 times for Holland, uh, was captain for almost 15 years. So mm. I grew up, you know, around our local rugby club, which, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will uh, will recognise this. And um, it's very similar in Holland as, as it is here. You know, it's a smaller sport, but it's still very much um, a family-orientated sport. So um, all of our friends would obviously, you know, their dads would play um uh, my uncles, both my uncles from both sides of the family uh, played rugby. And um, so I think I was always destined to play it. Um, I didn't actually pick it up till I was about eight, maybe, because uh, the, our, our rugby club wasn't in the local village where we lived, so it was a bit further away. So, um, you know, there's, there's an overload of, of other sports in Holland, you know, football, basketball, whatever else. Um, so I didn't pick it up till I was, till I was about eight. But, um, you know, rugby was very much my life from a very early age. And, you know, when I wasn't playing, uh, I was watching my dad on, on a Sunday, literally spent every Sunday around rugby pitches, and all of my dad's uh, kids uh, I would play with. Uh, but also, when I then became older and started playing, I started playing with sons of, of fathers that my dad would be playing with. And, and very later on, you know, in, in the Dutch national team when I played, Holland under 18s, I would be playing again against, sorry, or with with sons, uh, of which my dad used to play against. You know, it's, it's a very small world in Holland. It's only about 110 clubs, but it's um, it's a very very passionate uh, world and uh, you know very friendly. And I think that's you know the good thing about rugby. It's a very welcoming world, and it's not too dissimilar to uh, to what it's like in Scotland, obviously. Yeah, for sure. And 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 where did you sort of um at, at one point did you realize that, you know, rugby could be, you know, professional rugby was a sort of legitimate career option? Oh, not not really until I came for a trial at Newcastle. I um for those that that don't know, I was scouted at uh, Amsterdam Sevens by uh, another professional player called Joe Shaw, Joe Shaw and James Grindle. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Back in yeah, played for Newcastle, yeah. and they saw me play the sevens. I think they were just there on a jolly, but um, you know, I, I played um, in a in the Invitational Sevens tournament there. Uh, for I was sixteen. I think I just turned sixteen, and I was you know taking on grown men at that point, and and um, you know thriving. And I think um, they reported me to their their academy manager John Fletcher, who. 
you know, since then gone on to bigger things and, and gone into the England setup and, and whatever else. But he invited me over for for a trial, and I remember, um, you know, coming over and, and watching the first team train, and it was you know the likes of of Johnny Wilkinson, uh, Jamie Noon, Matt Tate had just broken through, um, Toby Flood, uh, you know, name it, and they were there, and Matt Burke. And it was just, it was, it was really surreal for me because, you know, we don't get much rugby on TV in Holland. Mm. Uh, you know, we also stations on the BBC. Um, but I, I, like every other youngster at that time, saw the World Cup final 2003 where Johnny Wilkes hit the winning drop goal. And here I was, um, God, six, seven months later, and I was watching him train uh, at Newcastle. And I remember asking John Fletcher at the time, I was like, Training was finished about two o'clock. I was like, oh, do these guys, you know, do they go on to their job now? What do they do? And he laughed at me again. This is, you know, this is their job. It's, it's a professional sport, which is when it kind of first dawned on me that you could actually earn your money playing rugby. That's absolutely amazing. What, what was, um, what was Johnny Wilkinson like as just sort of someone you could watch training? Yeah, he's, um, I mean, meticulous, uh, hundred percent all of the time you know one of these guys that that never does anything by half measures i mean it's 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 well documented how intense he is but he's also a really nice um fun guy to be around as well i mean him and his brother at the time were both of newcastle and you're sitting anywhere near him on the way to a way trip some of the stories that came out of the two of them was was just phenomenal but also you know incredibly incredibly nice guy i remember um Meeting him at, I think it was a sponsored dinner. And I was in the academy, so you know he didn't know my name. Uh, <laughs> and I met at a sponsored dinner, and you know he that was, I don't know, maybe Friday night. I don't know. And he uh, he was introduced to me, so I was introduced to him essentially. And um, you know, I was like, oh, this is Tim. Tim's come from Holland. He's he's in our academy. Blah blah. blah. I was like, oh, okay, fine. And a couple of days later, I was in Newcastle for sort of my first training session with the academy. And you know, the guy meets hundreds of people a week. I assume. Uh, and I walked past and he goes, Hey, Tim, how you doing? So he, he'd actually remembered and, mm. um, you know, the mark of the man, you know, to, he didn't need to speak to me then and, and to just speak to a young academy kid who's, who's come over from Holland, um, uh, by a guy that's just kicked, you know, England to a World Cup, um, win with his left boot, I remember, <laughs> um, was, uh, was really quite special. I mean, he's a phenomenal guy. I, I still, I, I bumped into him a little bit, um, when he was down at Quinn's, he did a lot of kicking practice with Mike Brown. Mm. Um, and still just a, a lovely, lovely man. Yeah, sounds absolutely amazing. Um, and when, when did you sort of kind of, did you ever think of yourself as like a sort of established player at Falcons? When, when did that sort of, when did you feel like, right, I've, 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 uh, I've got my level here. I'm, I'm comfortable in the team. When did that come along? No, I don't think, I don't think it ever did. Um, I think, you know, I came out of school, um, got my debut straight in the first uh, league game at the time, which, you know, we were losing. I came on as a sub and I scored the winning try. Um, I then subsequently scored in the next two games. And then, you know, as a young kid, I was like, yeah, I absolutely made it here. Um, and I think that was probably my downfall because I don't think I played again for the rest of the season. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, Newcastle was a turbulent club at the time. I was in a turbulent time, you know, a young kid uh, living by himself in Newcastle. And as you can imagine, I was going out a lot more than I should have been going out. Um, and um, I think probably paired with the fact that we had about three different coaches in three seasons uh, that I was there full time. Uh, didn't help me develop as a player, but I also probably didn't give it my all. Um, and then... You know, when I got my chance with New with Edinburgh, sorry, uh, you know, Andy Robertson uh, signed me at the time, and, and Rob Moffat took over as head coach. That was when I was like, right, I need to, I need to pull my finger out here and, and learn how to work hard and be dedicated and everything that comes with being a, an established professional player. And I, and I think that probably was the turning point for me where everything started clicking. And how did that move to, I mean, Newcastle to Edinburgh? I mean, I know it's obviously not that far away, but how, how did that move come, come about? Is that something you were looking to, 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 to do or was it just more of the opportunity? No, I think it was, 
I mean, Anthony Robinson had, had taken Edinburgh to sort of new heights in the years previous. Um, and having come from uh, the English system, I was very much in the English youth setup at the time. I was, I was at a private boarding school uh, by my castle in the northeast of, of England for my first two years over here. Um, I ended up playing uh, England schools, therefore, because, I, you know, as anyone at a boarding school, I went through uh, the county rugby setup and then, you know, played for the north of England uh, and eventually ended up playing for, for England schools. Um, and, and I kind of therefore, therefore rolled into the whole um, England youth setup. So I was in the interna- intermediate academy at one point with, with, with guys like, um, with guys like Danny Kerr and Danny Cipriani. Mm. Uh, Gordon Turner Hall, uh, kind of that that generation of players, uh, and I think and you probably knew my name through that because he was obviously England coach at the time. Um, so when my contract ran out in Newcastle, um, we had the same agent, a guy called Mark Spores from from Esportive, um, who's been my agent for for my whole career, um, great guy, and he. Um, He'd obviously, you know, gone to Andy, oh, a real weird one, you know, got a Dutch youngster who's played England schools is out of contract. Um, you know, we're kind of looking around, but we're not really finding anything suitable for him. Uh, at which point Andy said, well, you know, if, if um, you can't find anything um, that would suit him, we would love to have that Edinburgh kind of thing. And uh, at the time, living in England, there was obviously no, no exposure to the Celtic League at all. So, I didn't even, I had no idea what was going on or what, what the actual crack was with Edinburgh. Mm. But, um, I came up here, obviously saw Murrayfield, saw the, um, saw the facilities, but I think most importantly met, um, not just Andy, but also Rob Moffat, who was instrumental in that phase of my career mm. uh, and very quickly got some really good vibes. And, um, I remember Mark, um, Taking me me up to George, to George Street and we sat on the terrace, uh, looking out over the castle and having uh, we had some food. And I remember looking at him as well. I could I could definitely live here, mm. um, which is when the love affair probably probably started. Um, so yeah, the, the rest is kind of history. I signed a two year deal and, and never really looked back. Yeah, I can imagine that moment when you sort of thought, yeah, it's a pretty decent place to to be. Um, I mean, what what are your sort of favourite memories from your time at, at Edinburgh? What sort of games and what sort of experiences and friendships really stick out for you? Um, I think probably too many to name. I think especially in that you know early season, early phase of Edinburgh under Rob Moffat and then um, Michael Bradley, we had an incredibly tight team. You know, guys like Nick DeLuca, um, Phil Godman. Uh, Junk, Scott McLeod, Jim Hamilton, uh, Greg Hamilton, na- name it. You know, we we had a fantastic uh, team of Ross Ford and Greg Laidlaw, and you know, the, the names can keep flowing. Denton, Matt Scott, and mm. I think you know these guys that I still speak to, um, which is uh, brilliant. But I think you know back in the back in the day, it was for us it was the away trips, you know, going away to Cardiff. And for some reason, it was always three days. So you'd fly out the day before the game and then stay in a hotel, play. And then it was always like late game, so you could never get back. So we'd always have the night after. And you can imagine some of the cities that we stayed in, Cardiff, Dublin, um, it was it was some, we, we had, we made some fantastic memories in that time and, mm. you know, everything, and boy, everything just flowed from that. You know, I was really enjoying myself both on the pitch and off the pitch. Um, and I think uh, that that's what really stood out at the time. We had a, we had a great team who loved spending time with each other off the pitch as well. I think on the pitch, you know, there's a couple of memorable highlights. I think for, for me personally, um, you know, getting nominated for actually winning Young Player of the Year in my first season. I think I won Player of the Year in my second season. I got in the um, the dream team mm. a number of years. And obviously, top try scorer for a number of years, and on, and on top of that, you know, as a team, more importantly, um, you know, doing really well with Edinburgh in, in the Heineken Cup, getting to that quarter final at home, having thirty-eight thousand people there, CSB to lose, mm-hmm. and going on uh, to, to Dublin, I believe it was, to, to narrowly lose to Ulster, um, was was really quite special. Uh, you know, and then again in the later years, getting to that Challenge Cup final with Edinburgh. Um, 
and losing to to Greg actually <laughs> with Glossa. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was really disappointed. What was actually going to be my my home for the the next three years um, at the Stoop. Oh um, uh, yeah, of course. But you know, there, there is uh, there is so many memorable things from that time. But what really stands out is, is probably the friendships. You know, the guys that I still speak to and the guys that I just love not only playing with but also you know, hanging out with after afterwards. So you mentioned the nights out. Who who was sort of like who was leading the charge? I imagine. Chunk Dunk. was Chunk, Chunk was at the vanguard of things. Chunk was just, I mean, Chunk and Scotty McLeod were just phenomenal. You know, <laughs> they they could literally do all nighters and rock up for a seven o'clock flight the next day, looking you know looking fairly fresh. Um, but you know, we all we all loved going out. We were all young boys. There was a lot of young boys in the team. You know. Um, obviously the likes of, of the Luca and myself, Jim Thompson at the time. Greg, uh, there was just there was a lot of us that, that knew how to have a good time, and, and we very much enjoyed the, the kind hospitality that a lot of these rugby cities um, provided us with. But um, you know, I think I think it was just it just became it just became the norm. You know, you 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 go uh, you you play as hard as you can, and then you go out as hard as you can, and, and then you try and get on a flight the next day as hard as you can. <laughs> That sounds absolutely awesome. Um. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And then it was sort of... When did you start to realise that sort of playing for Scotland was was an option? When did those conversations start to happen? Um, probably about two years in. Um, I remember Andy coming up to me a couple of times and saying, "Listen, you know, um, we know you've you've never played international rugby um, for another country, so there is a chance here for you to play for Scotland if you um, you know keep performing well, keep growing well as a player, blah blah blah." And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember there was a game probably in that third season before I qualified where um, we were playing Racing at home. And I remember you saying, you know, this is, these are the kind of games where I need you to start stepping up, you know, show that you're a cut above and all that. Um, and I remember, I think, I think I scored two or three tries. Um, it was that crazy game, which was uh, 40, 56, 55 or something. Yeah, like yeah, crazy. I remember that, yeah. Um, and I remember I bumped into him afterwards in the lobby, and there was there was hundreds of supporters around. Um, and he was like, "You know, this is exactly what I meant. Well done. This is you know, this is what I need from you." Blah blah. And I think at that point I was like, "Right, well, this this actually could happen." Um, and I think Scotland were going through a time where they weren't scoring uh, a lot of tries; they were struggling to score. I was kind of seen uh, as the solution to that, which. I wasn't quite sure whether I was or not. I think as a winger, you can only live off the scraps you get. You get, um, and I was very aware. But um, I, I was lucky enough to, to start scoring almost immediately when when I did start playing for Scotland, um, which again was mainly due to Nick Deluca, who just always fed me the most amazing stuff. Um, but yeah, I think I think it was more sort of in that third season, and I was always very big on. You know, just just concentrate what I could control. So I was literally just focusing on 
um, Edinburgh and playing well for Edinburgh and doing my best for Edinburgh. I've always done that, you know, even when I was playing professionally, um, not just for Queens and Edinburgh, um, but I mean for Scotland, I always very much focused on, on my club career first. You know, you hear a lot of players just, just want to play for Scotland. That's mm. their all. Very much the way around, you know, I, I was very much about the affiliation with my club and giving it all for my club. And if that meant that I was then selected for international duty, then, then so be it. And that, that debut was um, Fiji in 2012. I, I, I actually, I was, I was trying to find highlights of that today, but they've only got the full match. I, and I, yeah. I watched I watched bits of it just to get your tries, but it, it seemed like an absolutely crazy match where you guys sort of got the, got the lead, but then it was probably like a kind of young Leone Nakarara before too many people knew about him, was just chucking the, the ball around and the crowd were going crazy. It looked like, a proper sort of baptism of fire for you? Oh, it was, it was horrific. I think it was, <laughs> yeah, both, both Nakarawa um, and uh, the scrum half. Got yeah, for, for yeah, um, Nico, yeah, Nico was playing as well and he was just, yeah, doing yeah, whatever yeah, he, he wanted. He came on with about 20 minutes to go and nearly won the game for them because he started chucking some ridiculous balls as he always does and yeah. nearly won the game. But, um, yeah, it was, I mean, all I can remember is just the heat. It was like 38, 39 degrees, incredible humidity, no wind. I remember standing in the shade with Hoggy trying to stay away from the warm-up because he was, I mean, he was obviously burning. Um, <laughs> but I would grab yeah. your hot and I just remember trying to keep my energy for the game. Um, but yeah, you know, we kind of had it in the bag, in the bag. I scored two tries and then. Yeah, Nico came on and they nearly won the game for them. I joined the change rooms being like sauna before and after. It was it was just horrific. They'd set up fans everywhere to try and get the air moving a little bit, but no, it was um, it was it was tough going. And you know, again, I think as one of the few nations that do go over there, it's an incredible experience. But mm. certainly, uh, a baptism of fire in in the most literal sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean. One of the interesting things from the the commentary, which I mean, sounded like it was on like a loudspeaker. I don't know where they were recording it. It was, um, yeah, it was. It, was, it just seemed a bit budget. But I mean, when you when you scored your tries, the the commentator, I don't know who it was, did you know refer to you as like the Dutch born winger, the Dutch born. I mean, did did you get much sort of stick at the time? As you know, probably one of like you know before Scotland started maybe getting more kind of project players. You know, one of those first guys that qualified just on residency grounds. Did you ever find that was the case? Um, not not so much. I think, you know, by the time I started playing for Scotland, I had been playing for Edinburgh for three years. So, you know, I wasn't I wasn't in any way a project player. You know, I was signed mm. as a player that needed a job, first and foremost. Yeah. But also, uh, you know, I was a young kid and, and I was just signed to play for Edinburgh. It had nothing to do with, with Scotland, as far as I'm aware, um, unless they saw something that, that I didn't see at the time. Um, but also, it meant that by the time I did get my Scotland debut, um, I'd already played with all of those players for three years. So the whole backline was pretty much um, Edinburgh players. So, you know, Greg Laidlaw was at 10 at the time, Mike Blair was at 9. Uh, Nick DeLuca it was just there was a majority of them were, were, were Edinburgh players so it was a very easy transition for me um, uh, and I think the other the other half uh, at Glasgow I had played against for a couple of years so they probably through that knew what I was about um, mm. they knew passionate I was about Scotland and how much I wanted to play for the country and I think um, I don't think anyone ever really saw me as um you know, a project player who just came here to get capped because it, 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 I mean, in all honesty, I'm not like a lot of the other ones. I don't come from a country where I can't make my own national squad and then come and try and find caps anywhere else. Mm. You know, I, Holland who don't play, just don't play professional rugby. Um, so in that case, it, it was very different. Did you ever get sort of tapped up to play for the Netherlands and? for Holland and kind of think, well, maybe that might tie me to the country. It's not the greatest idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember leaving Newcastle um, in 2009 and that would have, I think it was, I was about two weeks away from qualifying for England and, you know, having sort of grown up through that 
um, England youth system. Um, that was kind of where that was leading, but you know, I was I couldn't have been further away from playing for England. You know, mm. I, I was a million miles away from being selected for England. Um, but I remember that was kind of the anticipation at the time from people back in Holland because they thought, oh, he's playing in England. He's played for England 18s. He 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 might go on and play for England. Um, but you know, in all honesty, I don't know whether I would have ever, ever been capped by England with the quality of wingers they've got at their disposal. Um, but when I then signed for Edinburgh, it meant that um, legally that dropped. I could then not play for England anymore, which wasn't in any way um, going through my head at the time. I just you know, wanted to play rugby and, and Edinburgh was a great club. It, you know, I had no real ambitions of playing for England at that time. Um, but it did mean that Holland kind of saw a chance and they, because they, they, they lost me as a 16-year-old player Mm. Um, and, and I think at that point they thought, well, we can maybe get them to play for, for Holland. But I think the way that the amateur internationals are scheduled um, means they almost always clash with, with the, um, the professional seasons. So there would have never been uh, you know, a chance for me to play for Holland because um, I, would have, I would have not been able to play for Edinburgh and they would have obviously not been okay with that. Mm. Um, but it did that you know, I therefore inadvertently eventually didn't lose the right to, to play for Scotland, even though again you know, there, there was no no forward thinking on that. And and what games sort of in the Scotland shirt really stick out for you? What are the ones that you enjoyed the most? Um, I think if it wasn't so hot, probably the first one because everyone remembers their, their first cap fondly. You know, I scored twice and mm. um, one over in Fiji. Which is great, uh, but then I think for me the, the, the stick-out ones are New Zealand at home, which was my my third cap, even was my home debut, and, and again I managed to score twice against the All Blacks, which you know, from a young boy from from Holland uh, is that's, yeah. you know that's dream stuff. You know, was, was that off the um, was that off the Matt Scott intercept? I got that right. Yeah, Matt yeah. Scott intercept yeah. and uh, a Mike Blair, Blair pass, if I remember correctly. Um, but you know, as a sixteen-year-old kid, when I when I left Holland to go and play professional rugby, if someone had said to me at the time, "You're going to score against the All Blacks," you know, I would have, I would have ticked there right and then. I was signed for it. Um, that's absolute dream stuff. You know, even if people in Holland don't know much about rugby, everyone recognised the All Blacks, and mm. um, that was just absolutely magical. Um, and then uh, I think my best game in a in a Scotland jersey was against Wales in the 17 Six Nations where I managed to stop a try and then score one on the other side and had a great game um, and it you know it meant that we were able to beat uh, Wales for the first time I think nine years or something like that Was that the tackle on uh, Webb in the corner? Yeah that's yeah. right Yeah that was yeah such a great day um, I mean at what point did you start to think you know that it, it was obviously you had a, a lot of appearances for for Edinburgh. I mean, like well over a hundred um, bucket full of tries. What, what sort of led you to start thinking? You know, I'd like to to do or try something different. Um, I think I think it was under Alan Solomon's. You know, he came in had a very different view on rugby than I did. He was all about defending and then kicking the ball away as soon as you've got it, yeah. um, which meant that you know. Scoring tries became a lot harder, and I started enjoying it a lot less because, as you can imagine, a hundred ten kilo winger doesn't like chasing wing, chasing yeah. kicks. Sure. Um, and I think you know the whole style of rugby just changed and did suit me. Um, uh, you know, if probably if, if that hadn't happened, I would have very happily been in Edinburgh for the rest of my career. But that very much um, meant that I had to start looking elsewhere because. It was to the detriment of my Scotland um, career. You know, I stopped scoring as much. Um, I hardly got the ball. And on the other side of the MA, you know, both Tommy Seymour and, Ma- and Maitland were scoring tries. Mm. Um, so, you know, at that point, I was like, right, I need to cut my losses here and, and go somewhere else. And um, with the sticky point of it being a World Cup year, um, so I still need to get myself into a World Cup squad, which luckily I managed to do after a good couple of warm-up games with Scotland. Um, but, you know, that very 
very easily could have been the end of my Scotland career there. You know, I came from an injury, I broke my leg in 2013 and then came back to uh, an Edinburgh rugby team, which just wasn't the same. Uh, they didn't want their wingers to have the ball. They didn't want to see more than two passes. They didn't want to see any rugby being played in their own half of pitch. Mm. And imagine that there's just no point for me. I, I remember going up to Alan and, and saying, that. and he's a, I, I like Alan. He was a, he was a nice guy. I thought he spoke frankly and he was always honest. And, but he just had a different vision on rugby than I did. And I remember saying to him, listen, whether you put me on the wing or whether you put an academy boy there, there's absolutely no difference because there is no point sticking it. I think I was a 20 time international at that point mm. on the wing in your team. You know, there just isn't any point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he has a, a different different view on, on, on how rugby should be played. And he had, he had a view for, for the team as well, how he wanted to evolve it and whatever else. But, you know, I, I needed to get out. Um, you know, rugby careers are, are very short and, um, you know, you, you can't spend four or five years of that in the abyss not, not getting a rugby ball in your hand. Mm. So um, I think when Harlequins came with an offer and I saw the way Harlequins were playing, um, and meeting Connor O'Shea, who again, you know, is all, all my favorite coaches have all been very similar, you know, very positive guys, very, uh, very good man managers, and, and they all like a free flowing game, you know, Rob Moffat, Michael Bradley, John Fletcher right at the start, and then Connor O'Shea, you know, all very similar guys, and, and, and I jumped at the opportunity to, to join the Harlequins at the time. Um, and how, how much of a sort of, um, Shift, shift was it from Pro 14, you know, um, operating under sort of the, the watch liar the SRU into the premiership? Was it, was it a, a bit of a shock for you? Uh, not rugby wise. I think, you know, rugby is rugby. People talk about, you know, the quality of the premiership, the quality of the, of the Pro 14, and, you know, it, it's all the same stuff. You know, professional rugby at this level, whether you play in the French League or, you know, the premiership or in the Pro 14, uh, there is some differences in style, but you know, rugby is rugby. You get a ball in your hands, you try and beat players, you try and score tries. And I think um, from that perspective, I slotted right in the Harlequins. They played an expansive game. I got a lot of ball. Uh, I scored a lot of tries again, which was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, I just really enjoyed rugby again. Um, from a limelight perspective, yeah, it's different down there. Uh, Queens is a big club with a lot of tradition, with a huge following, um, and you know, everything that you do or um, or want to do around southwest London uh, you know, goes under the loop. Um, and I think the, the biggest um, remarkable thing about that is the fact that the club were very chilled about that. You know, players will misbehave on nights out sometimes, you know, like you always get, you know, young boys with a lot of money and um, a lot of um, a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they, they do things and, you know, if that would have happened uh, with the SRU, you know, it would have potentially been end of contracts in the club where they were very chilled about it. Um, they, they understood that, um, you know, players all wanted to do their own things in terms of sponsorship agreements and media obligations. And then at the end of the day, just, um, you know, earning money as well, because, you know, as soon as something becomes your job, um, part of, of what you want to achieve needs to also be to maximize your earnings. Because in my view, if you're not doing that, you're not achieving um, you know the best, the best you can be. Because if you are, um, if you are the best player you can be, in my view, you should be earning uh, as much as you potentially could as a player. Um, and that was probably the biggest thing about that. You know, they were very commercially driven at Harlequins, and they understood that players you know, wanted to do things on the side. Whereas um, the SMU were probably more conservative about that and liked to, to control it all themselves. Mm. Um, I mean, would you recommend? Do you think it that your your time at Quinns sort of like improved your overall game? Would you Would you recommend um, you know other wingers who are playing in Scotland to to go and experience something different? I don't know. I think I think what actually improved my overall game was was playing rugby under Alan Solomon's because aspects of the game that I just did not care about, um, like, you know, chasing high balls, high ball work, but also improving my defence became really important. So I think under him, I became much more of a, an all-round player, which, which mm-hmm. actually probably led me to, to be uh, as successful as I was at Harlequins when I eventually did come there. I mean, some, someone did um, 
someone did ask on Twitter when we said we're, we're speaking to you, sort of getting the questions saying, um, we, the, whoever this was saying that they saw a massive improvement in your kicking game at Edinburgh. I mean, who, and asking who it was that sort of drove that. Oh, well, um, I think probably, you know, Chris Patterson and, and, and Hodgie, um, when they, uh, you know, eventually started coaching me, obviously, you know, Mossy, uh, came back in as a, as a technical skills, skills coach and put a lot of onus on, on, uh, developing people's kicking game. You know, obviously that being something that he was very good at, uh, but also, um, you know, being coached by Hodgie for, for Scotland when he was, uh, Scotland max coach. Um, again, you know, a lot of, a lot of extra work went in with him. Uh, in terms of you know high ball work both defensively and attacking uh, and kicking, but I was always an all right kicker. I just never kicked the ball much because you know, I could score <laughs> ball away. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I, I think wh- one thing that maybe gets lost in your career is your when you played for the Babas before you played for Scotland, scoring two tries against England. I mean, how how was that experience? I mean, it looked looked absolutely amazing. Absolutely phenomenal. Probably one of the best rugby weeks of my life. Um, you know, you rock up, you get a, you get a big kit bag of kits, you get an allowance to basically just go out for the whole week. Uh, and I think we may have trained once. Um, it was a good, it was a good year because, you know, we had a fantastic team. I was, I was, I guess the uncapped player, but you know, it was the likes of, of Sergio Parise, Bastero, Michelac, uh, Heyman. It was, it was a phenomenal team. Uh, and, um, you know, I'd just been on a, I think a two week bender in, in Spain when I got called up. I think someone, else, I think Le Monde may have called out because he wasn't allowed to play because it's for the World Cup. Right. Um, I, I kind of got the shout. So, so I went over and then there was quite a lot of media scrutiny because it was kind of the, the coming of me as an international player. People wanted to see whether I could actually live up to the expectations. Mm. Um, and you know, that not being that easy if you've just been on a, a two week bender in it in Spain, but um, <laughs> you know, again, I was I was incredibly lucky. Got got two really good tries. Uh, scored the match winner in the last I think second of the game. Yeah. Um, and it's just it was an amazing week. We uh, we stayed in a city, London. Um, you know, we um, we must have gone out five days on the trot. I think a few of the players were out the night before the game. Um, and the day of the game was my birthday. And literally, I remember sitting in the team meeting at the hotel before we were due to leave for Twickenham. And um, the the president, Mickey, who's actually Mickey Steele Budget. Yeah, sure, yeah. And stood up and was like, right, guys, we've all had a good time, but um, someone here has, has taken it uh, a bit too far. And like these like this siren music, like police siren music started coming on. And I know instantly it was me because it was my birthday. <laughs> And um, these two police women came in, like Brazilian-looking police women. They're like, "Yeah, we're looking for Mister Visser." And I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> and they dragged me around and they put me on this chair, ladled me up in oil, and they were essentially strippers. And um, you know, here I was, like booby slapping off my face in front of the biggest rugby heroes I could ever idolise. Um, and uh, you know, I remember actually playing the game, and I dropped one of the first balls because it was oil over my hands still. And, uh, <laughs> but just you know, again, just the the whole the whole barbarian style is just fantastic. You know, we went out, and, you know, we beat an England team that were preparing for a World Cup, uh, and we'd literally been on the piss for six days straight. It was uh, it was absolutely phenomenal. Jeez, I've got I've got some more questions from sort of fans on Twitter, but. I really would like to leave it there. I don't think it's going to get get, get much better than that. I mean... No, nah, I think you should stop it there. <laughs> um, maybe I will just ask them to keep people happy. Uh, it's just a couple of questions that we, we ask everyone um, that, that comes on. Um, Favourite player to that you that you played with in your career? Who would that be? Uh, Nick DeLuca. Because he he was the one that gave you your scoring pass for your first try for Scotland, yeah, right? Yeah, that exact move we must have done about twenty times. I scored so much of his passes; it was absolutely phenomenal. It's like a, it's like a sort of double miss type thing. Yeah, it was just a miss pass, literally miss miss. And yeah, I just go straight down people. I was actually quite quick at, at that time still. <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, that he was he played right into my hands. That's awesome. Um, 
Hard, hardest opponent that you played against? Maybe like somebody you, you marked on the wing? Um, Andrew Trimble. I think Andrew Trimble um, for Ulster for years, you know, I, I handled him quite well. And then there came a time where he just flicked the switch, uh, which is around the time when he started also breaking through in the Ireland squad. And he just became amazing in the air. And I just remember getting absolutely dominated one game at Murrayfield by him, where I think he took me on the outside as well or something. I can't remember. I just think you know, he was he was big, he was quick, he had good skills, he was good in the air. Um, and I think he was incredibly underrated. That's really interesting. Because um, I, I suppose in many ways he'd be quite a similar player to you in terms of like the, the size and everything. But Yeah, he was. But I think you know, having gone through the whole Irish system, there's a big onus on high ball work over there. Right. Um, and he was, uh, yeah, he was always quite good at that. Uh, and the, the very last one, um, the, the worst roommate that you've, that you've had in your, your yeah, rugby cross. career. Sorry? Cross horrific. Death cross, you know, and I, I love, I love taking my kids off in a hotel room, you know, whenever I get into a hotel room, I take all my gear off, but like, watching him standing with one leg on the bed playing some Final Fantasy game on his iPad is probably one of the worst things I've ever seen. Um, yeah, he was horrible. Bloody hell. Sounds like an absolute <laughs> sight to behold. Uh, it, was, it was not good. <laughs> um, well, t- Tim, th- thanks so much for your time there. Uh, I think people are going to absolutely love that. It's been absolutely amazing. Um sort yeah, of perfect. recap of your career and everything so yeah thanks so much for speaking with us really do appreciate it yeah no worries all thanks for having me yeah no pleasure thanks babe even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.